Amen. Good morning. Um, you know, that song, Our Lord is Alive, and uh, he said that he would be our teacher, that um, we shouldn't call ourselves teacher or rabbi or father. Uh, he is our teacher. So this morning, I- I'm, I'm going to present um, God's word to you, but we're, we're always um, required to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us by the authority of what Jesus wants us to understand. It's not, it's not me teaching. I mean, I'm just responsible to declare what God's Word says. Anything that's not of His Spirit, not uh, accurate according to His Word, uh, needs to be disregarded. Um, but when we talk about um, the mysteries of the kingdom, this is what we're talking about today, um, we're, we're in this short series within this big series. This big series is discipleship. And the short series within that is the, the five discourses, uh, the major discourses of Jesus in Matthew. So this is literally Jesus teaching his disciples about the kingdom, what they should expect, what they should understand. The parabolic discourse in Matthew 13 is where we're at today. Parabolic means that it's a, these are parables. Um, and parable is, literally, it means uh, to throw beside. Uh, para is beside, and boleo is to throw. And so usually what you have is a parable is a little story, a little illustration that Jesus would use to help us to understand some other bigger teaching that, that he's presented. And in this chapter, what we see is um, eight parables. And so the first one is the main teaching, okay? And all the seven of the other ones are parables that he kind of throws besides the main parable to help us to understand what he's talking about, okay? So it's mysterious. It's not too mysterious because he explains it, but it is mysterious in the sense that it's unusual that you would have a parable that is the main teaching, and then other parables to try to help us understand that main teaching. So the first parable is one that you're pretty familiar with. It's one of the sower and the soils. You've heard this before. There is a, a farmer who went out, and he, he spread his seeds all over the place, willy-nilly, like a crazy man, all over the, the path, all over the rocky ground, all over the weeds, all over his, his good farm ground. Okay, He just spread it everywhere. Got all over everything. Um, and then what happens is the, the seed that was on the, the path, the birds came and ate that. And so that disappeared. And then the, the seed on the rocky soil had a little bit of soil, and so it sprung up quickly, but then the sun came out, and those, those plants died. Okay, they withered away pretty fast. Then the seed that was in the, uh, the weeds, uh, the, the weeds choked it out. And so it didn't produce any fruit. And then the, the seed that was on the, the main good land produced a, a really an abundant harvest. In fact, a miraculously big harvest, 100 times, 60 times, 30 times what was sown. Um, in their day, like 10 to 15 times was, was like all they would expect. So even the, the lowest yield was double anything that they would even imagine getting. And so what you have here. Jesus explains that parable to his disciples. He, he tells them this story, and then he comes beside his, his disciples. He said, here's what this means. Uh, the seed going out is the word of God, and uh, it's going to go out all over the world. It's going to go out on all kinds of different soil, 
and the seed that fall on the path, Satan is the bird. He comes and takes that seed away, that, the gospel or the word of God, and it becomes unproductive in that person's life. Um, the seed in the rocky soil that sprung up quickly, the sun comes out. The sun is persecution, hardship, turmoil, and it kills that seed before it takes root because it doesn't have a very deep root. It says the seed along the, uh, in the weeds, that springs up with the weeds, but the weeds choke it out. The cares of this world kill the effectiveness of God's Word in that person's life. But the seed um, on the good soil, it produces a great harvest. The fruitfulness of that that seed is, here's what he's basically saying, the, the difference that it makes, makes all the difference. It changes a person completely. There's, there's no part of their life that is unaffected by the power of God's word in their life. And so he explains that, and then he's going to tell us other parables to help us to understand what the whole mystery of the kingdom is about. Okay, so you have the, the framework, and, and what that parable is, he says, if you understand this parable, then you understand all parables, and especially in context with the seven that I'm going to tell you here just in a minute. But you have to keep in mind the main parable. It's the parable of parables. And now we get into uh, what he's going to talk about with the rest of the chapter. Before we do, he talks to his disciples about the purpose of teaching in parables. So let's stand as we read God's word. Matthew 13, verse 10 says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, uh, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they don't see. Hearing, they do not hear, and they do not understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For, here's the, the point, the reason, this people's heart has
thing that's happening, Lord, we understand that, uh, that you're, you're working in and through it, that, that we don't take anything for granted. And so, Father, we pray that uh, as you continue to bear witness to the truth, Lord, that you would do it in a powerful way right now. Um, give, us, give us the ability to change. Give us the ability to, to hear. And uh, Lord, I pray that, that you would break through any, any ground, till it up, um, get it ready, Lord. Uh, restore us to a place where we can, we can hear and receive your word today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, there are basically three things that the parable begins to help us to understand about the purpose of the kingdom in the world. One is the purpose of the church is to um, spread the gospel far and wide indiscriminately to get it out to anyone and everyone as, as best as we can, as, as without reservation as we possibly can. That's our, our job. We're the farmers spreading the seed. We're just throwing it everywhere. Secondly, there's a warning to the church about the receptivity of the ground that it's going to fall on. There will be different types of people that are going to hear the Word of God, and they will have different responses. Some of the responses will be negative. In fact, a lot of the responses will be negative. But then there's the promise to the church, which is that there will be fruitfulness. In fact, uh, the fruitfulness of the, the power of the gospel, of the word of God in people's lives who will receive it will be so extraordinary that their entire life will change, that they will bear fruit that is beyond expectation and beyond even understanding. It's, it's so radical how God can change somebody's life with the power of his word. And so that's what he begins to say. But before um, we get into those other parables, you have to understand the context and the context is Matthew 12, uh, verse 46. And what's going on is that Jesus has uh, been uh, in his public ministry gathering crowds of people, lots of people, because of the miracles and because of the, the feedings and all the things that are happening. People are being healed, and they're dragging all the, the sick people anywhere nearby, hoping that Jesus will, will be in the area and he'll heal them. And so they're just thousands and thousands of people are just gathering to hear Jesus, to be near him. And so in verse 46, what's going on is he's in Capernaum. He's probably in Peter's house, okay? Um, and he's teaching and he's crowded by so many people. Here's what happens. Uh, while he's still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. They want to rescue him from himself, from his ministry and from where this ministry is taking him, which is into danger and trouble, okay? He knows that's his purpose. He's going to the cross. They suspect that that is where his ministry is leading as well. I don't think they know it. Maybe they don't understand why or the reason or the purpose or the, the result but they do suspect that if he continues like this, he's going to get himself in trouble. They come to rescue him, and here's what he says, who is my mother, who are my brothers? Stretching out his arms to his disciples, he says, here are my mother, my brothers, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so what he says is, according to the kingdom, um, 
There will be people who don't understand, people in your own family, people in your friend group, people who you're related to, people you love. They're not going to get it, and it's okay. Um, It's not okay. We want them to get it, but you have to understand that the kingdom of spreading the gospel, this is my family. Those who receive Christ, those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, I have to continue to do what I'm called to do, and if they won't come along, then we'll just have to leave them behind. So here's what happens next, because that's hard for us to understand. How is it that Jesus can say that the, his own brothers, sisters, and, and mother um, are to be left outside, and his disciples and those who receive his message are the ones that, that are really his true family? He says, okay, well, I'll try to explain it to you like this. And so here's what happens. That same day, Matthew 13, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. Now, Peter's house in Capernaum is like a couple hundred yards from the Sea of Galilee. So he those weeds. And what does Jesus say? Um, Leave it until the harvest. Then what we'll do is we'll tear out uh, the bad stuff and burn it, and we'll, we'll harvest the good stuff and keep it. Now, here's what's interesting about this, is that Jesus explains that parable as well. He explains the first parable, the sower and the soils, and he explains to the disciples about the, the, goods, the good field with the weeds that were sown in it. Okay? So, what you have now is a picture that Jesus is telling the disciples, this is how the kingdom is going to be about the trajectory of the church in the history of the world moving forward. This is how it's going to be. And you need to take warning about the fact that it's not going to be just this meteoric rise of all good things and everything moving towards the utopia and everybody becoming more and more Christian until just in the end of the world, everybody's just a really good person who loves Jesus. That's not the story that you get in Scripture anywhere. 
What you get in Scripture is the fact that the church is going to be sown through difficulty, turmoil, conflict. There will be false teachings, false teachers, false disciples, and there will be a lot of issues within the church as a whole. And the church is being warned constantly about this reality. And what we see in these next six um, parables is explanation, an illustration of how this reality looks. Okay? So you got to take those two pictures and then you begin to understand the other ones. If you don't do that, then you will rip these parables out of context and you will misunderstand and misapply them because they won't actually make sense unless you understand what Jesus is saying about the whole gospel and its effect on the world. Okay? Because this is maybe different teaching than, than you've heard on some of these parables. But we're applying the rules of interpretation to get to the heart of what these things actually mean. So he says, uh, he put another parable before them, saying... Now, he doesn't explain these next ones. These are just little quick stories and illustrations that he throws alongside of what he's already clearly explained. It says... Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, what's happening is that the church does begin with this very humble, um, almost insignificant, maybe not almost, insignificant beginning, and it grows into a very large thing, Right? And it does so rapidly. Now, but here's what the problem is, is that the rapid growth of the church can become a false growth of the church. And when the, the false growth of the church actually results, then the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. In the first parable, Jesus explained who the birds were. Do you remember? The seed thrown on the path. The bird came and, and ate that seed and carried it away. And the bird was the enemy. The bird was Satan. So when he says that the birds nest in its branches, and you understand that these parables are illustrations of the first parable, then you have to connect the meaning of the symbols. And here's what we see in reality, is that in history, when the church has grown quickly and radically um, in different eras, then it is inviting for satanic activity. Here's what I mean. Um, in the 4th century, Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he became a Christian. Okay, you, you know this story? Uh, up until then, uh, the church had been off and on persecuted by different emperors over the years. You can read uh, a pretty good account of the early church's experience in uh, Eusebius, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, and so what happens, though, is that Constantine becomes a Christian, and he Christianizes the, the Roman Empire. And most people say, hallelujah, this is a great victory for God, and everything's going to go great now, because now we have a Christian culture. The whole Roman Empire is now Christian. But what had happened was that it became a state church, meaning that people be could become Christians without faith through force. And so you had millions, perhaps, who were now added to the church who did not believe in Jesus Christ in a personal decision to follow him as their Savior. 
because it was the law. And what has happened, uh, what did happen is that there was so much of that name-only Christianity. This is what nominal Christian, that's what that means. It means that you're a Christian in name only. It means you, you became a Christian because of your birthright or because of your culture, because of, of the family that you, you were born into, but you did not make a personal statement or declaration or, or a decision to follow Jesus. Forced into Christianity does not work, okay? And so there was so much corruption in the Catholic Church as a result of this because so many people were not actually believers in Jesus for their own sake that they didn't follow the Christian ethic. They didn't have a relationship with God. So over time, as the people saw the, the problems that were arising with that, we get to around, what, 1500? And Martin Luther says, hey, there's a problem in the church. We need to correct this, and we get a reformation. We want to change all the things that are wrong. We want to correct all the problems. We want to resolve all the inconsistencies, and we want to get back to what they had missed, for, or some of them, for a long time, which was a grace-based, a faith-based Christianity. But here's another problem. This isn't popular. Okay, some people aren't like this, especially if you're from a Lutheran background. Martin Luther, in expediency, um, did the very thing that was the core problem of the Roman Catholic Church in the, in the 300s. Government support, Lutheran Church, the state church of Germany, so that Germany could come combat, or in the Lutheran church, in the, the reform. And so in Germany, if you were a German, you were a Lutheran because that's the law and that's just how it is. And everybody's going to be a member of the Lutheran church. And so here again, the reformers oftentimes would do the very thing even though they knew, Martin Luther had written that the biggest tragedy of biggest mistake that they could make. But they did it. And so what happens is you invite Satan to get a foothold into rapid growth because we're so desirous of more people, more power, more money, more whatever, influence, prestige, that we're just going to throw out the gospel in order to get more people, and then we're going to invite Satan to be in control of it. And so the church has to always defend the right for the individual to proclaim their own personal faith apart from any kind of force or even to some degree coercion. Like, we don't want to coerce you. I don't necessarily want to convince you um, to have faith. You have to come to a place of personal faith, a responsibility that I have understood my need for Jesus personally, and I received that. So here's what C.S. Lewis, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, if you can be convinced to be a Christian, then you can be convinced not to be a Christian. It's not just a great argument and all these good that we're going to use to try to convince you. It's, you have to come to a place of personal relationship 
with Jesus. As uh, he took another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, you may not know this, you may know this. Um, yeast in biblical symbolism, when yeast, when leaven is used in biblical symbolism, it is always negative. It's, it's a symbol for sin. It's a symbol for corruption. It's a symbol for that which is bad or false, okay? So why would you use this symbol to symbolize something good in this instance? And the answer is, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that, okay? Their understanding of, of yeast was it was corruption. And what he is saying is that false teaching comes into the kingdom, and if you allow it to, it will pervade, it will, it will infect everything. You have to guard your doctrine. You have to make sure that you are standing on the truth of Scripture and not allowing for false doctrine to tear you off the course. And here's, here's what the, the, the church in America today, is facing in, it's, I think it's, it's most troubling hour, okay? We are in a place and a time right now where churches are falling by the wayside one after the next after the next. Denominations, whole, whole mainline denominations are just being corrupted by false teaching, false doctrine, and the reason why is because we have had over the last... 35, 40 years, had this, this movement. This isn't the whole problem, okay? It's just part of it. But this movement towards what we would call seeker sensitivity, okay? And there, there can be some good in that. We need to be relevant to the culture. Would you agree? We need to be relevant. But when we decide that we're going to change the church and the message of the church and the teaching of the church and the doctrine of the church in order to make lost people comfortable in the church so that they'll come and they won't feel at all that, that there's any problem with their lifestyle or what they believe or what they do or anything else. They can just kind of get along and we can all just be together. And, and I've heard people say, you know, we want to be a church where lost people love to come. We do want to attract people who, who don't know the Lord because we want all people to come to know the Lord. But at some point, if you don't know Christ and you don't, and you will feel uncomfortable. In fact, as Christians, a lot of the, I don't know, maybe not a lot of the time, but at least some of the time, we feel uncomfortable, right? You feel uncomfortable right now. It's, it's part of the message of God's Word that says we do not apologize for the truth and we don't water it down and we don't try to make it palatable and we're not going to put a varnish on it. it this is the Word of God. This is who He is. This is what He has declared. When you actually read what God has written, what God has said in His Word about what it means to be a disciple, most of us should feel like our toes are getting stomped on 
pretty regularly. But we leadership people tend to want to soften the blow a little bit because we don't want people to run away from the church. And there's a tug of war going on. We, we do want to make sure that people stay long enough to have the seed planted so that it can bear fruit, but we also sometimes are in danger, maybe a lot of the time, in danger of watering it down to the extent where it has no power. And then false teaching begins to easily weave its way into churches. And God removes the lampstand, and you see churches begin to dwindle and die because they have no, they have no power. There's no spirit. There's no truth. It's just a social gathering in uh, a, a pseudo-religious building. Okay, so the leaven you have to be watching out for. Be, be careful about false teaching uh, coming in. Um, the next parable is, is the hidden treasure. Now, it begins to take a little bit of a different turn here. This is verse 44. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you do anything to purchase your salvation? Okay, did someone pay everything to purchase your salvation? Okay, and that was Jesus. So just taking that, those truths and then reading this parable, a man finds a treasure and he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Doesn't that sound more like Jesus and less like you? He's the one who gave all in order to buy the field. The field is the world in order to gain the treasure that is hidden within it. Now, here's what you have to understand, is that salvation is a gift that you receive. It's not something that you purchase, okay? You, you don't buy it by your good work. You don't buy it by giving money. You don't buy it by being good enough. You don't, there's, no, there's no thing that you can do that, that will obligate God to save you. He has done all for you on the cross, and he just says, this is my gift to you, and if you want it, you receive it. Okay, He's the one who bought it. The treasure that is hidden in the field, in the Old Testament, there was a consistent word that God had woven through the Old Testament to talk about his relationship with his people. It's the word segula, in Hebrew, and what it means is my treasured possession. He constantly talks about Israel, the Jewish people, as his treasured possession. And what does Paul say about the gospel? He says it is first of all for the Jew, then it is for the Gentile. The gospel of Jesus, that he died on the cross to pay for sin, first of all, in order to pay for the sin of his own people, the Israelites, the Jewish people. So he'll do all to win some. He'll pay all in order that some will receive him. And so he purchases the field in order to get the treasure. 
The next one is very similar, okay? So it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here again, you have the same basic illustration. You have the one, Jesus, who's going to pay all him. But the pearl is a different thing than the treasure. So what's the, what are the problems? Okay. Um, just Pearl um, has this among valuable things. Right? It's you can't dice it up. You can't chop it. You change it in order to make it ruby or something else. Get the light to come in and refract and do all kinds of stuff. You can't do that with a pearl. A pearl is a unity bring the whole together into one. Universal church means that both Jews, Gentiles alike, all those who will believe are in one body, indivisible, right? This is, this is what he came to do, is to create something unique for himself. Now, the other thing uh, about a pearl, and there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but uh, another interesting issue is that it, how does a pearl form? You know how it forms, right? An oyster gets a little piece of sand or some of it. It's adversity. Now, the plants in the field that are sown in the good soil, they still require the sun, right? It's the same sun that's beating on the, the plants that die and the ones that thrive. In fact, the plants in the field, they cannot thrive unless there is a sun. And here's what I'm saying, is that the church, in order for you and I to become mature, we require a certain amount of difficulty, a certain amount of turmoil that we will go through in order to produce the maturity and the, the best fruit of the gospel in our lives. And what happens with the pearl is that, that that irritation or that turmoil or that problem actually produces the most fruit. And when you're thinking about your life and like all the good and the bad of it, what you're going to probably come to a conclusion about is that it was through the difficult seasons of my life that God's word became most true, dependable, and, and important for me. Where my relationship with God grew the most was when I had to really bear down and seek the Lord when I was desperate for Him because when things were easy, I wasn't really desperate for Him. When I needed Him, I ran after Him and I found Him and He did something in my life and He changed the way I thought about life, dealt with people and the way I understood Him and how I dove into His Word.
Amen? It's, it's part of the ethic of how God tends to work in our lives. He doesn't necessarily... How do I want to say that? It's not that He doesn't want you to have good times. It's that He wants you to be mature. He's most desirous of our maturity, and we oftentimes are most desirous of our comfort. And sometimes those things are in opposition to each other. The next parable, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown out into the sea and gathers fish of every kind. Basically what would happen is that uh, the, the fishermen would take a net, they would put anchors on the bottom of it, and then they would cast it out, and they would drag that net across the bottom of, of the, the sea or the lake, and they would gather all the fish that would be caught in this wall of a net, okay? And so they would just gather all kinds of fish, good, bad, whatever. And they would catch things that were unclean. They would catch things that, you know, they didn't even want to touch, you know, eels and all kinds of gross things. And at the end of their fishing trip, they would just weed them out. And here's what Jesus is saying. I and mean, he's already kind of referred to this at one point, is that the seeds go out, the gospel will attract a lot of different people, and there will be a lot of different responses. Some of those responses will be good, positive, and authentic, and life-changing. Some will be negative. There will be people who will react to the gospel in a very violent, vicious, malicious way, right? There will be some people that will be totally unaffected. They won't care at all about what Jesus did, who God is, what God wants from them, sin and salvation and forgiveness mean nothing to them. You just hear it and right over their head. You know, there'll be all kinds of different responses. There are people who are like, yeah, that's awesome. And then as soon as they find out that it requires something of them, they say, I don't know, I didn't sign up for that. It's not necessarily our job to concern ourselves with the idea that we have to change everybody. We are responsible to get the word out, and God will do the changing. Okay, so, but here's our problem, is that we're so careful and concerned and worried about the kind of reaction that we're going to get. Oftentimes, we won't say anything unless we are guaranteed that somebody will be positive about what we have to say about our Lord or our faith or the Word of God or who Jesus is or any part of it. If, if I know that they're going to be in agreement, then I'll talk to them. Otherwise, I'm not going to talk to them. And Jesus says, our responsibility is to get the Word out and we, in some sense, let the chips fall where they may. And I think that's like when you rip the potato chip bag open too hard and they just fly everywhere. You are not responsible for how people respond to the gospel. But you are responsible to your fear of rejection. And if there's one thing that I struggle with as much as anything else, it's that sense that I don't want to be hurt and offended and, and let down and disappointed when I share the truth of God's word and somebody reacts badly. And I've said this before, I'll just say it one more time. Um, what that is, is Satan winning. He has effectively, basically persecuted you because what persecution is, is pressure that silences your voice. 
even if it's in your, your own head, the idea that if I say something, they're going to dislike it, they're going to re- react badly to it, therefore I'm not going to say anything. Persecution has won. Satan has achieved a small victory in that battle. He doesn't get to win the war, but in that battle he's won the effectiveness of silencing the voice of the Christian. And Jesus says, you speak the truth in love, and you let everyone respond how they're going to respond. And guess what? Three out of the four are going to respond probably in not the way that you want. He says, here's, here's the result. You've understood all these things to his disciples? And they say, yes. <laughs> I just wonder if that's true. Like, are they just like, oh, yeah, we got it, no problem. Or were they just saying that? I don't know. I, I hope that they did understand it. He says, therefore, every scribe. And so he's saying, you and I who have received the gospel, who have, have the word of God planted in our hearts, you and I become teachers of these truths. Okay? Jesus is the teacher, but you become a scribe. You become a, a teacher. You become one who, who proclaims or lays it out for other people. That's what he's saying. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is old and what is new. What that means is Jesus is on every page of the Bible. The Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything about the law, everything about the history of Israel, everything about the prophecy, everything about the sacrificial system, all the purity, all of it was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is on every page of Scripture, everything in the Old Testament. You have to understand the Old Testament and what the law and what all of the history was pointing to. It was pointing to Jesus. But you have to understand that whole history. You can't dismiss it and discard it and say it doesn't matter. It does matter because Jesus is the answer to everything that God was displaying and doing throughout the history of the world through the Jewish people. So you bring out of your storehouse things that are old and new. Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Now, here's what we understand. As soon as Jesus had been finished teaching these things, he went to Nazareth. Remember we started with, he was in Capernaum, Uh, his mother and brothers and sisters came to try to rescue him, he tells them all about the the mysteries of the kingdom, how it's going to be, you're going to spread the gospel, people will have different reactions, but you're to be faithful in doing that, regardless of the reaction, there will be be persecution, there will be trouble, but there's also a promise that there will be response. And then he goes and he, he basically does exactly what he has told his disciples that they need to do. He goes to Nazareth, he preaches the gospel, and they reject him. So don't be afraid to look foolish. Don't be afraid to speak the truth in love and be rejected. He says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back to my hometown where they know me. I'm going to talk about the gospel. And nine out of ten of them are going to say, who do you think you are? purpose of the church is to indiscriminately share the gospel. The warning to the church is that you will not always get a good reaction, but the promise for the church is that for those who receive, the difference that it makes will make all the difference. All the difference. Now, here's one last thing. How do you open your heart to the Word of God? How do you do that? 
Can you just decide, I'm going to open my heart to the Word of God? Maybe you can. Maybe you just say, God, I'm, I'm opening my heart to your Word. I'm going to read the Bible. But here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you search the Scriptures diligently, thinking that by them you have eternal life. You remember this? You remember what he said next? He says, the Scripture talks about me, and yet you refuse to come to me for salvation. And here's what I'm just going to tell you, is that if you want to open your heart to the Word of God, then what you need to do is open your heart to Jesus. The Word of God is intended to bring you into a relationship with Jesus personally. We can study this book backwards and forwards, upside down, in every language it was written in, and every language it was translated into, and every commentary, and every word study, and everything else. But if you don't know Jesus, then this book is not going to do you a bit of good. It is calling you into a relationship with Christ. You open your heart to Him, you say, God, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm opening my heart to you. I don't know all the answers to all the questions. In fact, I don't know all the questions I should be asking. There are a lot of things I'm confused about. This world doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things about Christianity I don't get. There are a lot of things about church history that are confounding to me. There are things about how the church is now that I don't like. But I love you. And I'm opening my heart to you. And as you read God's Word, what's going to happen is that you'll see Jesus on every page. And your relationship with Him will deepen. And your understanding will grow because what's going to happen is he's going to plant the seed of his word in your heart and he's going to be the one that bears fruit. I don't know how you make that happen for somebody else other than simply inviting them to know Jesus. Amen? And Lord, we thank you that we've been invited to know you. We've been invited into a deep, personal, and permanent life-altering, eternity-changing, transformative, spirit-infused relationship, Lord, that has made all the difference. Those who know Jesus know there's no part of our lives that is, is the same after what we've been through. It doesn't make everything necessarily easier. There are a lot of things that are just as hard and some are harder. but you're walking with us through it all and we thank you for that and you're giving us understanding and sometimes, most of the time, Lord, there's a peace that surpasses understanding in the midst of the conflict, the turmoil. There's a rest that we find in you and we thank you for that. And, but we're, we're not looking for an easy life. We're looking for an awesome eternity. And so help us, Lord, to... Do our part to just throw some seeds around however we can. And we're going we're gonna to throw them in the wrong places. We're going we're gonna to be indiscriminate. We're going to throw them everywhere and just let you do what you're going to do. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would make some people ready. Would you open some hearts? Would you get people into a position, Lord, when their heart and their mind, their 
attitude, their, their life, where when that seed hits, Lord, it, it's, it's in good soil. And we'll rejoice in the fruit that you bear. Do it in us first, we pray, and Lord, we pray that you would do it powerfully in our community, our homes, our schools, our workplaces, and our world in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just invite you this morning that if you don't know Jesus, if you have not received him, this world has a lot of different messages about what it looks like or means to be, and they probably wouldn't use the word saved. That's the word that we understand and we use. There's only one way to have confidence that when you die, you're in the presence of the Father, which is through a personal receiving of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you have not done that, if you've done anything else, try to be a good person. I've attended church for so many years, whatever. But you haven't received Jesus personally as your Lord and your Savior, then you're not saved. No good work, no other thing, no, no activity under the in existence brings you into a point of right relationship with God other than what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I'm inviting you, if you don't, if you haven't received that, just by a simple act of faith, you can do it where you're at. You don't have to come to the altar, but it's a simple act of, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I receive what you've done for me. Please forgive me. Save my soul. And it's done. But I invite you, if, if that is the case this morning, we'd love to celebrate that with you. We'd love to explain how that works in the process of growing, staying, persevering in, in your faith. Um, but we want to invite you this morning just to, to make that response to the Lord this morning. Let's stand and sing.